you can call it chiropractic, you can call it movement specialty, call it anatomy teaching. All I want to do is empower people to understand how they are in charge. And there's no better way of getting charge of your pain, of your movements, of your mind than the diaphragm, than breathing. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Emily Kybert here. We are joined with Dr. Kathy Dooley, a chiropractic rehabilitation specialist in Midtown New York City. She is the co-owner of Catalyst Sport, a multidisciplinary health and fitness studio, and the founder and lead instructor for Immaculate Dissection Educational Seminars. She's a worldwide lead instructor for a technique I also use, neurokinetic therapy seminars, and an adjunct instructor for NYU, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and Weill Cornell Medical College. We dive deep into the essential trifecta to well-being. You know it, you've heard me say it, mobility, stability, and strength. We talk about the importance of breath, and how to help your patients take control of their own health by being their humble guide. So I feel like you are this great fusion of anatomy, functional movement. I remember reading way back in the day, duly noted, (laughs) which were these daily posts of inspiration and people would like salivate for them. (laughs) No joke. And you used to have, and you still do this one, this anatomy angel, yes, which I loved. And now you have this like creation of immaculate dissection Mm -hmm. and you're this educator and a practitioner, which is great because Gabrielle and I always talk about, what is it? The castle, the White tower, the, the white tower, the, the castle. Yeah, like how some people will research but not do the practice. Right. And I feel like you're you have your hands in like the yeah, teaching I, and both. Yeah, I did research, you know, for a while too. When I was getting my master's degree, I loathe it. I mean, I like to read it, <laughs> but I don't like to do it. And how did you get interested in all that? That's so fascinating, especially with the all the anatomy. Yeah, it's a specialty. Anatomy was my worst board score. And so I don't really, really like to be bad at things. And I had a colleague, Dr. Ross Maddox. He was one of my classmates in chiropractic school. He uh, encouraged me to become a tutor for anatomy because they needed it. And I said, no way. I, you know, I got A's in anatomy, but barely. I was really on the cusp. And he had suggested that I take the exam and I barely passed it. I got like a like a 78 or something. And then I became an anatomy tutor when I was in chiropractic school and really loved it. Upon graduation, I already had a job somewhere, but I really knew I was going to miss anatomy. So I, I clicked on the wrong thing, but ended up being the right thing. And it was a a master's training in anatomy with human dissection based. Hmm. And they were offering to basically pay my graduate degree for in in exchange for a faculty position. And I snatched it up. And where did you do that? I did that at New York Chiropractic College. Yeah, that's upstate. People call it Central West because they get offended if you call it upstate. So yeah, that's uh, outside of Rochester, Seneca Falls. So interesting. And did that change your perspective of your practice? 
Mm, yeah, I actually had to leave practice for three years because the master's training was two years and I had a three-year fellowship. And so for those first two years, the program was so intensive with me getting master's training and also teaching full-time for the college that um, they didn't really allow me a lot of time. And I was aware of that would happen. I would, I would have to take a hit. And it was really hard for me. A lot of my friends were talking, you know, they would message me and say, I'm loving practicing. And I'm like, I'm in a lab for six or eight hours a day and sometimes six hours at night and I'm with, you know, a dead human being and trying to learn from it and they're like full Sounds of life. romantic. Yeah, super romantic. And it taught me something unexpected. It taught me how to meditate. Wow. When you're <laughs> alone with, with, with the dead for six hours by yourself at night, you learn how to focus. And um, that part was unexpected and wonderful for me and I needed it because I was a little everywhere. And you did your, was it your thesis or the dissertation? Yeah, a thesis, a master's-based thesis. I had dissected 87 bodies bilaterally and then took data on even more. And it was on the suprascapular nerve and ended up being published. My only official publication published a little bit later by a radiologist. So the whole thesis on that one nerve. Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you the amount of hours logged. It was, and the defense of it was nerve-wracking and just one nerve with inferior belly of homohyoid relationship like it, it literally was anthropomorphic measurements and lit review and a drowned in research and f you figure out pretty quickly you don't want to do something and that was a necessary evil and now i appreciate researchers like nobody's business got it but don't want to do it got it and now you have a practice in midtown Manhattan, I do. and it's this really cool fusion because you're a trained chiropractor, anatomist, yep. but you're also a movement specialist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really hard to call yourself a chiropractor when you get stuck in kind of that box. I usually call myself a, a chiropractic rehabilitation specialist, even though I know that's not an official term. But, you know, when you spend an hour with your patients, you really can't call yourself a traditional chiro. It's very much like yourself, Emily. Um, and um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's really, really fun. How do you treat your patients? Can you take me through? Absolutely. Yeah. So my initials are an hour typically, and I send them an intake in advance. And it's very much a Chinese medicine based intake because I have acupuncture training. So I like to look at the holistic view of how things are affected. And so after I put them through a questionnaire, they send it back to me and tell me how long it was and how much they learned about themselves, which is great. And then when I get them in the office, I run them through a selective functional movement assessment uh, created by Gray Cook, the amazing Gray Cook, and uh, put them through gait analysis and through analysis through um, immaculate dissection movement screenings and, and NKT, uh, neurokinetic therapy movement screenings, and give them therapeutic treatment and then give them homework, which I film, notes that I document, uh, send them stepwise instructions for each one so that there's good compliance, hopefully on their part. And then I invite them to a password protected Dropbox and then they have me coaching them on video. And that's every patient, every visit. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because... I think chiropractors get a bad rap, along with some PTs sometimes, of like three times a week for the next 12 weeks. Yeah. Your follow-ups are different. Oh, very. And some people tell me, like, the, <laughs> I, don't, I never know how to answer this question. They say, when should I come back? And I say, I have no idea. And it's probably a terrible business model, to be honest. I never really saw myself as a businesswoman, but here I am. I tell them, I need you to, to work on this and be compliant, and I'm going to be in touch. We're going to talk to each other. Because if you 
do not create ergonomic changes for yourself. If you fall into these same patterns, you are going to be seeing me all the time. And I'm out of network, not exactly cheap for you. So maybe I'm not the right practitioner for you if you're not going to be compliant. And for the most part, you know, most of my business is built word of mouth. And so people already know what they're going to have to do because they've had a friend that's had to do it. So I get to weed out a lot of those people that that really won't be compliant, I think. And if they're not, they'll be seeing me for the same thing and paying me for the same thing. And I teach them that that's not really what I'm interested in doing. Mm. And I, I will gladly fire them. Like I just refer them to someone else. And what does the treatment involve? Is it strength? Like with Emily, we do a lot of strength and breathing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Emily and I are like birds for sure. That's why we get along so well. The strategies I, I employ are mobility, stability, and strength, the trifecta. And so a lot of people are, are not educated, as you guys probably know, that <laughs> a disparity of strength will show up as a mobility problem. A, a disparity of mobility can show up as a strength issue. And so I teach them about the trifecta and how important it is to have mobility, stability, and strength in equal ranges with equal amounts of each other. And if there is a missing part of that trifecta, then the others tumble. And with a lot of my training, it can be chiropractic, it can be manual therapy, it can be, I hate to use the word stretch, but like mobility work. And then it's also stabilizing, holding things for sustained isometrics. And then of course, doing uh, ballistic training eventually and working into strength positions. So it could be as easy as teaching someone how to breathe on the first visit. And it could be pendular movements with immaculate dissection, or it could be teaching someone how to do a pull-up. It depends on where they are and what they need. And in your clinic, Catalyst Sport, you have trainers helping integrate all these moves. Yeah, yeah it's really great. We have what's called a semi-private training. So basically, if I'm releasing them into fitness, we always want to make sure that we're protecting them so they don't get injured. So they have like a, a duly set of correctives that they could do. And then they go into their FMS assessment, a functional movement systems assessment done by the training team. So that's kind of like the uh, trainer's version of the SFMA. So as the clinicians use the SFMA, the trainers use the FMS. And so we integrate our findings with each other and make sure to keep the people that are in like a red zone that they're like restricted from doing overhead press, let's say, if they have shoulder issues or, or, or pain upon pressing. So we don't let anybody push through pain and we have to work with it and not necessarily through it, which is really important for the longevity of fitness. The trifecta. Yeah. I think it's really great because it helps identify people who are potentially hypermobile. Who would that be? <laughs> She's not pointing to me. <laughs> and I find in my practice, those are some of the most difficult to work with? Like, what's your take or what's your approach? I make it very self-effacing, to be honest, because I tell them and I, I tell them and show them how hypermobile I am. Hmm. Like I show them my thumb oh, reaches wow. my wrist. Oh my gosh. I show them how I have crazy mobility. And I also show them that I can do feats of strength. Like I'll show them I bent a wrench or folded a frying pan or can do a pull up. And even though I'm not a light person and, and show them that a lot of my pain has dissipated through matching mobility, stability, and strength. That if I had a range of motion, I had to be strong in it or I wasn't allowed to enter it. It's kind of like having the key to a room that you're not allowed to enter unless you have that key. And so I educate them about putting 
restrictions on oneself when it actually puts you at risk of getting hurt can actually be a very, very good thing for your longevity. So maybe, I don't know, that class where you do a certain pose, that pose may not be good for you. So maybe choosing to do a certain pose in a different way and talking to your instructor might be more beneficial. And it's amazing when they find out that they are allowed to restrict themselves from things. And hypermobile people, you're right, are difficult. I'm difficult. Wait, but why is that? Difficult in treatment or difficult in personality? Oh, I think those are not separate entities. Um, yeah, I yeah. agree. That's so interesting. I'm a very difficult person. I mean, most people <laughs> would say that about me. I'm a pain in the butt. Sorry, censor that if you need to. Being hypermobile is no fun. Hmm. People always, like people that are not very mobile want to be more mobile. And I think that hypermobile people have it really tough because they never know quite where they are in space. Hmm. They don't have the strength or stability to control said space. So they don't have the strength and stability to control that proprioceptive drive into the cerebellum that can tell you where you are in space, which makes you feel crazy and makes you feel like you're easy to top over and, and not feeling strong in body is not feeling strong in mind and I feel like it's really tough to be hypermobile. It's a really tough straw to, to draw. So let me ask you this. Do you think that there's an increase in hypermobility? Are there certain patterns that you're seeing that are just showing up over and over again? Yes. Some of it is posturally based, like the tendency to be hyperkyphotic, excessive flexion of the thoracic spine or, or locked into certain positions due to the fact that we sit all day. And then standing and trying to extend through a low back that, that tends towards instability because it's trying to promote mobility of the lower extremity, those like hypermobile low backs. So that's why we get disc herniation in our neck at certain junctions while we get lumbar disc herniations. These are <laughs> excessive mobility on one spot. And that can create a lot of discomfort for people. I find hypermobility creates the maximum amount of discomfort for people in mind and in body. <laughs> on an emotional level, so obviously the patient subset would be small, but like Sometimes I feel like those people, like it's, you, I want to ground them emotionally and have them feel like they like they're feeling the floor. And sometimes I've noticed that that's difficult for that that hypermobile population. Oh dear goodness! Really? And, oh, not you, darling. <laughs> You're a superstar. She's yeah. saying, but so interesting. It is interesting, and I think that. It's also like, I don't pretend to be a psychotherapist. I encourage, you know, therapy. I encourage them dealing with their stuff. And I almost want to wear a shirt that says deal with your stuff all the time because you really should. But, you know, if they're in Why? that. <laughs> if they're in that state, I mean, you can also cue like the foot tripod or the hand tripod and that helps them stabilize their mind because you're taking them away from all these things that distract them and giving them a focal point. And hypermobile people need a focal point, just like somebody who needs mobility needs a focal point. They need to understand movement and how it relates to their mind. And, and I'm not completely esoteric about it. I'm very biomechanical about it because that's my job. So I say, look, this point, this point, and this point are the points that you need to be focusing on and then let them really anchor to that and then build onto something new. And I feel like it really does focus their mind too, which can help them in psychotherapy. We've done, I've taken a lot of study groups mm -hmm. with yes. you, <laughs> and everything always starts with the breath. Yes, it always did. It always did. It always <laughs> you does. You had children, you know this. Yeah. So do you want to speak to why that's important yep. and why, especially as a movement specialist, that's important? Yeah. My patients are always shocked that I want to talk about this because they feel like, oh, well, I breathe anyway. I breathe on automatic. And this is part of the problem that we breathe on automatic and we think our autopilot is a good one. 
But breathing, like all things, is a behavior. And it's the behavior that we we started out with that was our own. As soon as we pass through the canal or we're removed by a C-section, we're swabbed out, boom. The first thing that we do for ourselves is scream our heads off and take a breath. And then after that, it's about when we start to develop cognition, we start to develop our own strategies to do it. And these are malleable. Like breath is largely voluntary. Only part of it is really autonomic. And even the autonomic parts you can change. And so I think it's fascinating that the diaphragm, the, the major muscle that is promoting all things breathing is both under somatic and involuntary control. So basically you can control it and then there's part of it that controls itself, but the vast majority of it is under your power. And so with every breath you take, you have an option of connecting mind and body and the diaphragm is innervated by the phrenic nerve, which means mind, even the anatomists back in 1600s knew that this was a massive connection. And it's the only breathing muscle, the only muscle that you have that's really active during REM. Other than your rapid eye movement that's reflexive, you have this one structure controlling your entire show. I don't know if I have one structure controlling that show, I'm learning how to control that structure. And the, the more you tap into the fact that you are in charge, you start to understand how, why when someone's anxious, they tell you to breathe or why when someone has back pain, one of the primary things they should probably do is breathe because the diaphragm is setting the tone for every single structure you have as a trickle up and trickle down effect. It's vastly important. It's the only thing I, I care about. If someone is in half kneeling, the only thing I care about is their breathing. If someone is walking down the street, all I care about is their breathing. If they can't breathe in the position, they don't know in the position. It's like the simplest concept. And, and when you start to tell patients that and they start to realize that they're in charge of it, it's very empowering. All I ever want to do, you can call it chiropractic, you can call it movement specialty, call it anatomy teaching. All I want to do is empower people to understand how they are in charge. And there's no better way of getting charge of your pain, of your movements, of your mind than the diaphragm, than breathing. It's why monks sit on mountaintops and, and leave their homes to focus on 16 to 18 hours a day of breathing drills. It's how we connect to our entire universe. It's how we stabilize ourselves. And believe me, when you can't do it, man, is it the only thing that you want? Hmm. Yeah. Do you ever get pushback from Every patients day. being like, I don't have to do this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Drugs. It's like my nemesis. Yep. Ad nauseum. And <laughs> I mean, I'm non-negotiable, obviously, in personality. So if someone gives me too much beef, I, I, I'm very quick to tell them, like, well, we're probably not right for each other. But I'm really kind, you know, especially in the beginning <laughs> about it. I'm like, I understand this is difficult. I understand that this is, is difficult and it's going to be a lifelong effort for you. But the better you get at this, I'm going to vow to you with everything in my entity the better you get at this, the better you get at everything. What would be an example of taking someone through a basic breathing exercise? Well, that's a great question. So for me, I would start everyone in supine 90-90. It's a basic three to four month progression of a baby. And I show them the baby on my wall and I show them a, a female adult right next to the baby that's mimicking that. They love that. They go right to that picture and they see that, oh, this is not so stupid. You know, I did this since I was a kid and I, I'll assess them, their anterior doming from rib five all the way to pubic symphysis to show them that this is supposed to be expanding, that this is actually how you were built to breathe and watch a dog, watch a baby. I tell them to do that as well. And then I, I put them through a lateral expansion and a posterior expansion assessment and show them that 
axial upward breathing is actually not biomechanically efficient. It's not the way we're designed to do it. And so I explain, I show them on my wall, the diaphragm and how it pushes down and how it expands in 360 like a balloon. And they're amazed at how they can't do it. Hmm. So why do you think that happened? Like in nutrition, I can tell you why people gain weight. I can tell you why they have metabolic dysregulation. Mm -hmm. This is really interesting because this is something that we were designed to do, yet everybody... 95% of people do it incorrectly. It's one word, Gabrielle. It's stress because stress produces corticosteroids, right? It's a a stress hormone that changes your homeostasis at the limbic system. The limbic system's amygdala is directly linked and has afferents to the diaphragm. So when you have a stress response, it changes the diaphragmatic positioning and its contractility and usually locks it into an expiratory position, a partially expiratory. That means they never get a full inhale, never get a full exhale as long as they're experiencing a stressor. And that is intense. When and you so think that about starts... It. As soon as they have the cognition to realize that they're stressed out which is anywhere from eight months on. So how did they do it back in the hunter-gatherer days? Did they do it correctly then? They had different stressors. And I would say like, we have longer life to live than they did. And so they had stress, all right. And they died in their 30s. And so I would say they probably were underachievers. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have anybody doing breathing drills, no. I think that, you know, they did experience all that. I think that they didn't live as long as we do and they didn't have as much of, I I think they had a different type of stress. They had survival stress of predator. Our stress is, is different. Our food is different. Our environment's different. All of it's different. But what I educate my patients about the importance of realizing stress will not go away. They have to befriend it. They have to welcome it, which was very hard for me to learn. The better my breathing got, I noticed the better I handled stress. And the more that I welcomed in stress, the better my breathing got and the less my pain was, was really a big factor because all chronic pain is linked to hypoxia, all of it. Whether if it's, if someone's had pain after six months, you are <laughs> in a various state of hypoxia and that is because the amygdala controls the diaphragm. And so <laughs> for me, it's every patient, every visit, you don't get, you don't get a pass. You wouldn't want to pass. You shouldn't want to pass. This is the best thing that you can do anywhere, in any position, you're breathing. And your autopilot needs to be improved. And the better you improve it, the less pain you experience or the more weight you lose. Or how do we get rid of body fat? Through the breath, that's where it goes. Like this is, it, it's the only thing really worth talking about when it comes to human movement for me. Like, it, And everything else is just an offshoot of really, really good expansion and release of intra-abdominal pressure. It's really, really crucial. I know everybody listening is thinking about their breathing right now. You know they're all like, <laughs> good. Am I down, down, down wide into my little body? Everybody. It's, it's so amazing too. Like I, I've learned so much about myself through breathing study. And, and as a migraine sufferer, it's been the only thing that's been able to even reduce any of my my chief complaint of that. Like as much as I, I think the other things have helped me when it comes to when you're really in trouble, when you're anxious, when you're stressed, if you go to that, it makes things better. And I think it's true about human movement. I think it's true about stress management. I think it's true about weight loss. It's definitely true about nutrition. And you'll love this. You know, you already know it, that the digestive components of innervation go directly through the diaphragm. The splanchnics that control motility and actually can stop digestion go right through it without even its their own holes. My patients do not want to breathe. 
<laughs> right? It's kind of like the black sheep, just like protein is a black sheep. I'm sure you guys hear it all the time when patients come in, they don't want to breathe Yeah, every time. So I see Emily, right? So I see her twice a week. I come in, I'm like, please tell me. She's like, please don't tell me I have to do these breathing drills again. <laughs> every time. And even your best gastroenterologists are telling people that have acid reflux to take three breaths before they eat. Why are they doing that? They're trying to harmonize that diaphragmatic tonicity on the splanchnics, on the vagus nerve. They're, they're trying to encourage you to have better motility and better digestion. I mean, it's anatomical. It is also... I don't know, metaphorical, Yeah. but for me, it's just, I make everything about the anatomy because that's the best way to describe it. It's, you know, scientific. Was there anything that transferred over from anatomy lab to what you do now just that blew your mind? Was oh, there, wow, that is like the hardest question. I don't even was know there one that. thing that just... I guess to piggyback on diaphragm, the absolute inability for me to separate the thoracic diaphragm from the transversus abdominis. And so for people that are not into anatomy, if you just... Google the words diaphragm and the words transversus abdominis and you look at them. These two muscles are your chief inhalation, exhalation muscles, and I can't take them apart. I have to use a scalpel to get them apart, but no other muscles do I have to do that. Like I can really do, I can separate most things pretty easily, but not those two. And, I, and when I saw that and kept looking and kept looking and now it's, I've seen it 2,600 times. That's it. So 1,300 bilaterally, right? Jeez. And so like you see it and it never gets old. It never gets old. You look at it and you're like, that's my priority. That's my priority. And you just take a big breath and you're like, yep, it's a huge, huge priority. And the more I've made it a priority, the more I, I'm getting older. I'm 39, but I feel the best I've ever felt. That should be the way that it is. It shouldn't be, oh, I'm getting into my 30s and 40s and I feel like garbage. No, no, you should be developing this muscle memory you should be learning about your nutrition learning about how to optimize oneself what is your breathing practice it's every day bare minimum twice a day morning and night for me it's it's largely meditative so i i go through some breathing strategies that i've developed with immaculate dissection with pendulums and and just optimizing first like making sure my diaphragm's in good position and self-assessing i teach my patients how to self-assess their breathing and to know whether or not they should do some strategies beforehand and then i do a pretty big like five to 15 minute commitment based upon where I, what i'm feeling if i'm feeling pretty good it might be a little less if i'm feeling like i really need some optimization then i'll do a little bit more and then i have a like lately, I have a, a 300 kettlebell swing practice. It's all only focused on breathing, really. And every single breath, I'm like, did that stink? <laughs> How could that have been better? And before you know it, you're losing count on the swings. And you're like, wow, I feel like all activity really should be about, is this making me thrive or am I surviving it? 300 a day. 300 minimum. Yeah. 300 swings a day. Amazing. That's our next plan. <laughs> it's really a good one. You'll find it's like a, you know, how people take a cigarette break. I take a swing break, right? So for me, I just I do kettlebell swings. And you know what I love about smokers is that they take a break. They walk outside, they take a break. You know what they do with it? They breathe. Now they're breathing in a carcinogen, which I don't promote. But you know what they're doing is they are taking a break from their life, which is why a lot of those smokers probably can de-stress a little easier than their non-smoker counterparts. And maybe non-smokers need to take a hint and, and maybe do something, whether it's just a straw. I'd love to take their cigarette and just replace it with a straw and say, exhale through this instead of the cigarette. But they take a break. And I think that most people probably could use that 
during their workday. How does immaculate dissection play a role into treating your patients? Oh, it's, uh, yeah. What is it exactly? <laughs> My practice has largely become an immaculate dissection practice. I've learned so much from Greg Cook and the SFMA and FMS and through David Weinstock and neurokinetic therapy and through the Prague School with dynamic neuromuscular stabilization and, and the baby. And uh, I love all of these techniques so much, but immaculate dissection is something that I've amalgamated from all the things that I have learned and make it anatomically based. Because that's the way I feel like things should be described because it takes away the esoteric nature of it. It makes it really like this has been around for as long as humans have been around. The better you understand, the better off you are. My patients use words like pronation, supination, scapulothoracic. I make them use these terms because I want them to know that they're in charge of understanding this and it's not above their intellect level. It was my worst board score. I mean, if I can be a master of it and, you know, internationally known as an anatomist, then then they can learn what the scapulothoracic joint is, or they can learn the word pronation, or they can use the word clavicle instead of collarbone, and they can understand the way that they move. The better they understand the way this stuff works, the better off they are at actually fixing it. And they don't need me. I'm a catalyst. I'm an envoy. And so for me, immaculate dissection shows up in the assessment and the correction of just improving integrity of the tissues, getting everything to harmonize, getting everything to work together. And that's how it was born. So if someone takes an immaculate dissection course, what does it look like? A little glimpse of what it looks like. Oh, it's so fun. Um, I've heard you guys break out into song. <laughs> Bethany's taken the course. We are very silly. This is very true. We have wonderful ways to remember things because we have a lot of experience in teaching, obviously. But the amazing Dr. Anna Folkemer, she is a doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine. So she always brings the Eastern way to describe things to match the Western. She is, is a wonderful educator and also a dancer. Just a oh, just lovely to watch move. Danny Cork paints the anatomy on the body. And he also does things that are difficult to understand. We create strategies of learning for people. And Danny has wonderful ways of layering muscles so you can actually see the layers. And we put that on the body so people can watch things move and layer things out. So it is, a, it's of course an anatomy course. So it's very anatomically dense, but it's through movement, which is not as common for you to go to an anatomy lecture and then experience the way things move in pendulums. And we do a lot of palpation, a lot of movement. And, and we try to encourage people through everything from song to drawing on each other. Like everyone's got Crayola marker all over them and stickers. And, and it's very interactive because we know that people don't want to watch a PowerPoint and <sighs> fall asleep during the CEU class. We want people to not even, we don't even really offer CEUs for that reason because we don't want people taking a course just to get credit. We want them to take a course because they want to really integrate anatomy into their careers. And anatomy as, as a, I don't know, as a chiropractor, I don't know where I would be without it. The way that I describe things is through biomechanics, is through movement. And if people just took the time maybe to take a course or to read some anatomy angels, to, to look at, at some of the stuff that, that we do with movement, I think that they would be able to diagnose themselves better and have to reach out less. My ultimate goal is for nobody to need me at all. That'd be great. You keep mentioning pendulums. Mm -hmm. So a pendulum to us is triplanar movement of a structure. So for instance, like the internal abdominal oblique, which I feel like full books should be written about this muscle and not the psoas. <laughs> but people love that psoas. Um, my patients use the word psoas. I'm like, well, if they can use the word psoas, they can use the word supination or internal abdominal oblique. So this muscle has the tendency to be triplanar. It's both intrinsic and extrinsic core means it builds you pressure and also moves you like crazy. And it moves you in three different planes. So we in 
ID, we always talk about things being triplanar. So we say, what's happening on this axis, that axis, this axis. And in a pendulum, we shorten things and lengthen things on the different axes. And that's how we experience movement. And so people say that it can resemble a yoga class in a way, it can resemble a kettlebell class in a way, but it's an active stretches, 3D stretches. Some people tell me it resembles some things they've learned at the Gray Institute as far as like just learning how things move through planes. And so for us, we call them pendulums because you're moving from short to long on different axes, just like a pendulum swinging back and forth. And there is no wrong way to do things, only just movement experimentation and trying to understand how these things act when they move. Nice. It's fun. You're also a lead instructor for NKT. Yes. Oh, love NKT. Love NKT. I've always wanted to know what Kathy's explanation on a neurological level of what is happening. I, I get asked that all the time. So you mean during therapy localization? Or yeah, yeah. 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 So the hot button word or phrase is conscious proprioception. So basically when you touch something at the receptor level of the skin, this you have a kind of a gateway in to your cerebellar programming. So when you do a muscle test, it's less about strength and more about can the person create a, a strategy, a GPS to be able to match my pressure? And so by touching something else, you can actually weirdly tap into the way that you store things on a proprioceptive level and suddenly a muscle test will go from weak to strong. And that is largely based upon pairings and, and tapping into a map. The body hates to fail. It only learns from failure but it hates to do it. So a failed muscle test is like opening a gate that allows you in to the secrets of how you store a GPS. This is how I describe it to patients and they really, really like it. They find it to be weird and they use the word magic, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's mystical. It's magical. It's voodoo. It's voodoo. But really I tell them, how, why is this so weird? If I put a glove on your hand and you try to type on your phone, is it more difficult? And they say, oh yeah, absolutely. I have to take my gloves off. I'm like, okay, well, it's not so different than like, imagine like a muscle test that fails. is like you having a glove over that spot. And then I remove the glove and then just touch something that's really overriding something else or in a falsely paired relationship. And that analogy tends to work pretty well for them. And they start to understand, I, I just talk about things being overactive and underactive, upregulated, downregulated. And when you talk about basic antagonism. It's like a tug of war. One tries to work, the other one doesn't. I use myself as an example. I'm like the overeager kid in class trying to answer all the questions. I sat next to a guy in chiropractic school who had to move because I would answer too many questions. <laughs> he knew the answers, but I never let him answer and muscles are the same. And so sometimes things just <laughs> talk too loudly and they need to be sedated while other things need to be upregulated. And that seems to go really well with description and there's no doubt that it's effective. I've been doing in KT since, I mean, I'm still relatively new in the realm of it because David, of course, has been doing, developing it for 40 years, but since 2012 is when I started and it just gets better and better. I get better and better at it. And the students really demand me these type of descriptions, which I'm really happy about. I want them to demand me to, to explain things better. Yeah. No, I love that description. You educate 4,000 people yearly? I was like, is that all? Yeah. So basically between the two seminar series, between the four schools that I teach for, it reaches well past 4,000 typically. And what have you learned to step into 
that role, especially because the four schools, it's like different. Yeah. Different Dental kinds of, yeah. and medical. Yeah. What have you learned from that experience and like holding that space as an educator? <sighs> What I love about teaching and I think why I teach is they let me get away with nothing. You're not allowed to be wrong. So you can't really pull the wool over anyone's eyes. You have to be correct or they're going to find out they're students. And I love that about them. Like if I don't know something, I have to say, you know, I don't know. I got to go find out for you. And they constantly demand me to research and look up. And my heads are always in the books. I'm always on PubMed. I'm always looking at stuff because they demand it. And I think why I love being exposed to so many people of so many different disciplines from acupuncture to dental is that the common ground is the anatomy. They bring me back always to the fact that the better you know anatomy, the more common ground you have with every profession, whether it's nutrition, whether it's acupuncture, whether it's dental, medical. If everyone has a common vernacular and a common ground, then there is a place for us to start a discussion. And I don't know, for me, that's just anatomy. I've seen Gabrielle pull out a book, Protein and Amino Synthesis Acid, <laughs> amino acid Synthesis. And she's like, this is my bedtime reading tonight. Nice. And That's I sometimes awesome. pull out a JOSPT. I was like, <laughs> I wonder, I could totally see Kathy being along that same. Like- I was literally on JOSPT uh, walking up to your <laughs> office. I was, I do, I'm doing a study group tonight for ID on Bunyan. And I wanted to collect some good articles for, for the participants. And- I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any favorite go-to sources? For, oh, um, well, and also anatomy texts. Oh, yes. People always ask me about that. I always say the anatomy text, the best one is the one that you're actually opening Okay. And reading, which people hate that response. But really, it's true because in order to be a published anatomy text, you have to have gone through a lot of jumps. And the best ones, I think, are the Tema Atlas. It's spelled like the word theme, T-H-I-E-M-E. It's purple and silver. I love their atlases. And Gilroy is one of my anatomic heroes. And I, I love the way that they lay things out. Essential anatomy apps are wonderful for interactive experiences. If you're into applications, I'm not so much into the applications as much. But like, give me the paper. With the- <laughs> so Netter, is so out, right? yes. Netter is out, right? Yes. Netter is out. Netter is out because Netter is full of mistakes. <laughs> but um, even in this, the sixth edition is probably the better edition that I've seen, but it's a little cartoony for me. So if you need to like see things as a, if you like a visual, all hail Frank Netter. But for me, I need something to look a little bit more like it looks in the human body. And so things like Grant's Atlas are very good. Tima is very good. They all have their mistakes, of course, which I also like. I like catching those because it shows the humanity behind, you know, error. And they're also not all consistent with each other, which can be very frustrating. But British Grey's Anatomy is the one that I feel like every major clinician should own. British Grey's. Any journals you love? Yes. I'm in love with JOSPT, as you probably guessed. Uh, Clinical Anatomy. I've reviewed several articles for that journal. So I like that one a lot. But any kind of rehabilitative medicine journal is great. I don't like to play favorites too much because I find spine journal is just epic, you know, and a very high impact factor. So if I need something about the spine, I'll go to spine journal. But those are my favorites for sure. I think it takes a very unique personality to, as our friend Chris Sithrin says, (sighs) to like stay curious, to kind of like keep hunting Especially when you're kind of like figuring out like, what's that root cause? What's going to like unlock things? And I'm sure in a functional medicine way, absolutely. Yeah. Just always educating. Always Always. reading. That quality resonates in you. Where do you think that comes from? I guess I've always been obsessed with the learning process. And the more that I learn, the less I feel like I have a grasp on 
And I, I'm really, I find that very comforting and I like that a lot. I love the challenge of not being good at things. I'm not athletic by nature, I'm like fat, chubby kid, you know, not really good, you know, clumsy. And so watching myself become like a kettlebell athlete has been really, really fun. And the same thing for anatomy being my worst board score. I love being bad at things. Right now, my husband and I are in this Tai Chi Quan class and I could not be worse at it. He's this awesome, calm, you know, bamboo of strength and I'm, this hyper mobile, nobody can get me in the right position kind of person. And I know that I'm going to be one of the best students because I suck at it because I'm terrible at it. So there's this thing about wanting to always just take myself to the next level of body awareness and understanding of human movement and myself. And I think that that just doesn't die. And being surrounded by students constantly drives me all the time because they come up with a new way to ask me something that I don't know how to answer. And so I've made myself exposed to people that are like me that are just completely dissatisfied with the way that they learn. My thesis advisor had said to me, he's a PhD in histology, right? Just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, Dr. Robert Walker. And he said to me, I said, you can't let me walk with a master's in anatomy. You can't let me walk across that stage because there's, there's no way I'm a complete fraud. And he was like, I remember feeling that way. I said, I didn't know anything. And when I got my PhD, I was sure of it. And so he was like, this isn't about you knowing enough. This is about you caring enough. And when he said that to me, I, I just never stopped learning, never stopped caring. And not only he as my thesis advisor, but one of my, the great mentors in my life, Dr. Ralph Gert, he was you know, a surgeon and he had said to me, people are dying because people don't know anatomy and you have a responsibility as a, a person who is driven by anatomy to never stop learning about this stuff. You're never going to be done. He was 90 and doing research on anatomy like six or seven hours a day in his dungeon, just reading articles, reading journals, 90. And he, the inventor of the hernia stat, someone who revolutionized plastic surgery, telling me you're not done. You're never going to be done. And I don't know when you surround yourself with people like that, that are really driven to the, till his death death he was driven there's no other way to live like if i get this shot at this life at this time this is the only way to do it so it's every morning every night it's breathing drills it's anatomy it's every single post it's every discussion i have it's it's just there and because i care because i need to leave a mark on more than just my patients but a mark on the way education is presented because there's problems in education. And the biggest problem in education is the box we like to fit in with a grade. And so it's never going to be done. I have two more questions. What's the best part about being married? Oh, my God. He is really great at showing me how ridiculous I can be. Because he has an enormity of calm and focus. And when I, I'll get mad about something stupid like, why can't you just put the clothes in the laundry? Why do I have to do it? He's like, well, and he'll say calmly, like, did you ask me to do it? And I'll say, no. And he's like, well, you know, honey, all you have to do is ask me and I will do it. And I was like, geez. And then you realize how ridiculous you are that you expect someone else to read your mind. That's not, that's not fair. Well, and women were really good at that. <laughs> And it must be something in my DNA. I don't know. But also he, he has a drive. Like I thought that I was a driven person until I met my husband. There's just like this endless 
drive towards excellence. When I watch him train like for grip and he'll grab my hand and, and I know that he could literally break every bone in my hand and he's still not satisfied with his progress. Like he won't even record himself to get certified in his grip training. He won't even record himself until he feels it's a certain ease because it's not to him about the results. It's the process. The process is the result. So he sounds like he's a great teacher. Oh my gosh. And he's nine years younger than me, which keeps me young. But also he just reminds me that it's, it's not about age. Wisdom isn't about age. It's about experience and, and just openness to self. He's really, really accepting and supportive. And like, I felt guilty at first being married and traveling all over the world and being gone 40 weekends out of the year. And he says, well, do you love it? And I said, I do. And he's like, well, then why would I keep you for something that makes you so happy? And I'm like, geez, this marriage thing might be really cool. It's, it's a good deal what's the second question i want to know <laughs> oh the second question was where do you see immaculate dissection going like what's the dream <sighs> the... i already living the dream but like... <laughs> yeah it's, it's like we're shocked the fact that anybody listens to us at all like we would like our first seminar like might be like 10 people and then we'll have a like japan sold out in eight days with 35 spots like it's really hard to predict so we will talk to people on the streets that don't know anything about anatomy and teach them anatomy we just we just want immaculate dissection to be the change we want to see in anatomy instruction because it's not like how many really amazing educators are out there feeling trapped because they have to teach a syllabus they have to teach a powerpoint origin insertion innervation blood supply but then you put it into the real world and, and i put somebody through a pendulum i'll put a class through a people through a pendulum and ask them just to do the three motions of one muscle and they go they, they just completely fry out and these are people that are educated in this field and i'm like whoa if they don't know it then nobody does and so we just want what we're doing to be commonplace we don't want to be special we want it to be the standard and so that's what i would like to see that immaculate dissection is just something that people take because it's the standard or maybe we see other seminars adapting and, and changing and, and employing some id principle that would be great too we have no hubris we just want to move and teach anatomy and we want everybody to know it nice that's our goal i wish that was around when i took high school anatomy <laughs> that was like dry and terrible Me too. <laughs> all my anatomy classes for the most part nice it was so great having oh, you thank you yeah i feel this like i've is known great. you for like i don't I know. know five years eight yeah. years i have no thank idea thank god for nkt I or know. i never would have met you i know exactly yeah. thank you so much thank you yeah thank you it's just great super informative oh, it's for great to meet you too so new to learning about movement and Hypo stability. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase. I like and hypermobility. <laughs> hypo stability. I like that. Yeah. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be one percent better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? We have a great contest for you guys to share the word about muscle medicine. We have a signed copy of Brenda Bouchard's High Performance Habits, Foods That Fit Your Macros ebook by Holly Baxter, Kathy Dooley's Immaculate Dissection DVDs, five of my favorite health and wellness books, a 60-minute higher dose, which is an infrared sauna place, a session for two people, a Mobot mobility water bottle so you can foam roll and hydrate wherever you are, and a roll of rock tape and rock floss to get your mobility and stability in all the right places. How do you get these prizes? Go to Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Hit subscribe at the top. 
Give us a five-star review if you love what we're doing, and then head over to bit.ly slash musclemed, B-I-T dot L-Y slash musclemed. Send us your name, your email, hit submit, and then you're entered. Share muscle medicine with your friends to increase your chances of winning. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.